0: Welcome to the Australian Chamber Orchestra podcast. That music you just heard is from the first movement of Arvo Pärt's Tabula Rasa, the work that is at the centre of the ACO's first concert series of 2021, entitled Tabula Rasa, The Blank Slate, which seems like a good place to start a new year. My name is Francis Merson, and I'm delighted to be with you to explore the works in this program that has a definite Eastern European flavour to it. Apart from Paret's Tabula Rasa, we also have Prokofiev's Sonata for Solo Violin in D Major, Opus 115, a work that's rarely performed on the concert stage. Shostakovich's Chamber Symphony in C Minor, Opus 110, based on his String Quartet Number Eight, and the work Orawa by the Polish composer Wojciech Kilar. And just in case all that Eastern European stuff seems like too much of a good thing, we also have something completely different. A brand new work, a world premiere, in fact, by the British composer Thomas Addis. Uh, You may know from his multiple visits to Australia, where he often comes to perform, usually his own music, as a pianist and a conductor. And so what I'm going to do in this podcast will be familiar to anyone who's been to a pre-concert talk at the ACO. I'm going to give you a bit of a whirlwind tour of these five works, give you a sense of the historical backdrop to the music, the often turbulent lives of the composers, play a bit of the music, break it down, uh, and explain not just what what to look out for when you listen to this music, uh, but also why these pieces are worth listening to in the first place. And interestingly, four of these works were written behind the Iron Curtain, so during the period of the Soviet Union. And it's really fascinating to examine how these composers found different ways to deal with the strictures of the official school of socialist realism, and how this struggle against censorship was imprinted not only on their music, but also on their lives. And so let's begin at the beginning, chronologically speaking, with the oldest work on the program, which is Prokofiev's Sonata for Solo Violin in D Major, Opus 115. So this is a three-movement work for Unaccompanied Violin, composed by Prokofiev in 1947. We just heard a bit of the first movement. Uh, Prokofiev, like many other prominent Russian musicians, including fellow composers Stravinsky and Rachmaninoff, emigrated to the West following the Bolshevik Revolution of 1918. But by the time the violin sonata sonata was composed, he had actually moved back to Russia and had been there for about a decade. So why, when the other composers stayed away from Russia, did Prokofiev decide to come back? Well, unlike stravinsky Rachmaninoff, Prokofiev's career in the West wasn't exactly an unmitigated success, and he struggled to find work as a composer, uh, although he did have some success touring as a concert pianist. Ironically, the one place where his music had always been well-received was in the country he had left, Russia. And from the late 1920s, the USSR started a concerted campaign to woo Prokofiev back. They organized tours in which his music was always received with kind of rapturous acclaim. And they made all sorts of official promises that he would have special privileges and and loads of prestigious commissions. And so in 1936, Prokofiev finally caved in and he decided to move to Moscow with his wife and his two young sons. Now... Anyone who knows Prokofiev's biography well will be able to recognize that this is someone who had a, a knack for extremely bad timing. And if you were to choose the worst possible time to move to Russia, that time would have been in 1936. Within months of Prokofiev's arrival, Stalin's so-called Great Terror was unleashed. Uh, this was a purge of the intelligentsia and party officials, involving several million arrests by the secret police, including countless numbers of Prokofiev's friends and colleagues. Even Prokofiev's first wife and the mother of his two sons, with whom he arrived in, um, in, in Russia, was also sent to the Gulag, where she was effectively held hostage should Prokofiev ever decide to step out of line. And so it's hardly surprising that in this period, Prokofiev really stripped back his music of any progressive and overly complex trappings, uh, which would have been deemed decadent according to this to kind of Stalin's new artistic doctrine of socialist realism. according to this new paradigm, music should be based on simplicity and use kind of very immediate and direct folk infused and usually Russian. Melodies, music that can be understood by the common man, and so Prokofiev in this period tried his hardest to follow the dictates of, of socialist realism. And he also wrote a string of rather dubious commissions, as many composers were forced to do, praising the USSR and its leader. He wrote a 60th birthday ode to Stalin called Zdravitsa, Stra- and you know various works. Celebrating the glorious achievements of of the Soviet worker, you know um, a piece that that's about the completion of a hydroelectric dam project you know that that kind of thing, however, it must also be admitted that the Soviet realist' style also played to one of Prokofiev's great strengths, and that is his strength as a melodist uh, Prokofiev could write incredible tunes, and one need only think of uh, the themes from. Uh, works like Peter and the Wolf. And, of course, Romeo and Juliet. And the Sonata for Solo Violin that's in this Tabula rasa program is really in that same style. It is melody that carries the whole musical argument. And this is all the more important, as the piece was actually the result of a commission from the Soviet Art Council for a pedagogic work for talented children. Uh, and as such, it's a rather special work in the canon of violin music, as it's intended to be played either by a single soloist or by an entire ensemble of violins playing in unison, a practice which was apparently not uncommon in Soviet schools. As such, it is mostly single-voiced. The music's very rarely enriched by any chords or ornamentation, because you had to have perhaps 20 people playing it at once. It's a work in three movements. It's very classical in its spirit and structure, and it follows the fast, slow Fast order of movements that is very typical of the classical period. It also has that same kind of lightness, an emphasis on a singing melody that we see in music of the classical style. And this is nowhere more evident than in the second movement, uh, which is probably the, the strongest movement of the three, uh, where a simple tune serves as the basis for a set of variations. So it's a theme and variations movement, and each variation is even more charming than the last. So let's hear the theme of the second movement, which is entirely diatonic. So what does that mean? If you think of playing a a, a tune on the piano, and you play it using just the white notes, that's a diatonic melody. And so you can't really get much simpler than that. But Prokofiev, of course, knows how to make even the most basic musical ingredients into something rather special. Let's have a listen. And so you'd think that writing such simple, beautiful music would have helped Prokofiev's cause as as a kind of um, dedicated Soviet composer. But no. Within a year, he was absolutely excoriated in a public denunciation of his music, alongside that of Shostakovich and others, which was called muddled, nerve-wracking sounds that turned music into cacophony. Deprived of any commissions, deprived of a livelihood, by the end of the 1940s, Prokofiev found himself literally on the verge of starvation. He was saved only by the intervention of the young cellist, Mr. Slav Rostropovich, who apparently barged into the office of the secretary of the composers' union, Tikhon Krenikov, who had led this denunciation denunciation of of, of Prokofiev and others. And Rostropovich warned that if Prokofiev were to die of hunger, that Krenikov would be held personally responsible. And so Krenikov, as the story goes, reluctantly coughed up 5,000 rubles. However, Prokofiev's health was already in a steep decline, and he died a few years later, at the age of 61, in, in 1953. A man who was completely just worn down by circumstance. And just in case you weren't convinced about the argument of Prokofiev having a knack for poor timing, he happened to die on the 5th of March, 1953, and the history buffs listening will recognize that as the date that Joseph Stalin died. And so not only did Prokofiev fail to outlive the tyrant, who was more than a, a decade his senior, it's worth noting, Prokofiev also happened to live right next to Red Square, For three whole days, the throngs gathered to mourn Stalin, making it impossible to carry Prokofiev's body out of his apartment building, let alone hold a proper funeral for him. When a service finally could be held at the Soviet Composers' Union, there were no flowers at the funeral, as every flower in Moscow had been used to make wreaths for Stalin. One of the few people who attended the funeral was Dmitri Shostakovich. We just heard a bit of the second movement of his chamber symphony in C minor, which is also on the program. Shostakovich was younger than Prokofiev by some 15 years, and so was lucky enough to see the relaxation of artistic censorship that was brought about by Stalin's successor, Nikita Khrushchev, in a period known as the Thor, um, as in what happens when the snow melts at the end of winter, not the Norse god Thor, obviously. Uh, so the Chamber Symphony, it's a transcription of the String Quartet Number 8 and is one of the composer's most enduringly popular and kind of most performed works, despite the fact that it is a work that is absolutely ridden through with angst and despair. The quartet dates from 1960, Shostakovich has been sent to Dresden in East Germany to work on the score for an East German film. And in Dresden, rather than do any work on this score, Shostakovich instead composes a quartet in just three days, which he inscribed in memory of victims of fascism and war. And Dresden, of course, is a city whose uh, astonishing kind of Baroque architecture was completely flattened uh, by the allies in a, in a series of bombings. And so it seems to be an appropriate place to write a work about the victims of war. However, Shostakovich was later revealed to use this inscrip- inscription as something of a, of a smokescreen to avoid official retribution, because what the quartet was really about was the con- composer's own struggles against Stalinist totalitarianism. And so a letter uncovered in 1993 to his friend Isaac Glickman supports this version of events. So in the letter Shostakovich writes, I thought that when I die, it's unlikely anyone will write an elegy for me. So I decided to write one myself. You could have written it on the cover, dedicated to the memory of the author of this quartet. And the quartet is indeed absolutely peppered with musical references to Shostakovich. The work is in five movements, played without a pause. All the movements are in a minor key, and with the first and last movements in C minor, which is traditionally considered to be a very tragic key. The work opens with a four-note theme, built on an abbreviation of the composer's name. So the letters DSCH. In the German musical notation, a letter corresponds to a note of music, and in this notation DSCH, which stands stands for Dmitry Shostakovich, becomes the notes D, E-flat, C, and B. And this Shostakovich theme is used to open the very first movement of the string quartet Number 8, where it is used as the subject of a fugue. So a fugue is a piece of music where you have a subject, a bit of melody, which is introduced by one part, one voice. And then successfully taken up by other voices and developed by interweaving these parts, uh, a bit like strands of thread interweaving to create a a cloth. So let's have a listen to this uh, DSCH theme as it becomes the subject and then is developed in fugue form in the first movement. this theme pops up again and again and again in this string quartet, supporting the view that this is really an autobiographical work. This is a work about Shostakovich. Indeed, perhaps the most interesting movement, the fourth, is like a kind of encyclopedia of musical references to Shostakovich's own life. It begins with these kind of banging staccato strings that supposedly represent anti-aircraft artillery uh, against the drone of bombers, something that Shostakovich would have experienced uh, during the siege of Leningrad. These incredibly brutal sounds uh, give way to a flurry of musical quotations. We hear the first four notes of the Ds Irae from the Catholic Requiem Mass, followed by a Russian funeral anthem. The Shostakovich theme comes up again, and then the violins, over a droning note in the cello and, and, and viola, I think it's a low C, uh, play a revolutionary song, which is known to all Russians, uh, entitled... Exhausted by the hardship of prison, you slept in glorious death. So I'll actually sing you the opening bars of this song uh, in my best kind of Red Army choir impersonation. tis nevoli Ty smertju So I bet you weren't expecting me to break into song, but that's just what you get on the ACO podcast, that little bit extra. And so here's how this same song sounds in Shostakovich's treatment in the fourth movement, where it follows directly on from the Shostakovich motif. And it's about, it's almost as though the composer is really singing here about himself and about his own suffering. And so why was Shostakovich quoting this song in particular, a song about dying in prison? Well, the Soviet Union was a kind of prison. You certainly couldn't leave in 1960. You had no right to emigrate. And Shostakovich really was at the end of his tether, and many believe that at this time he was wondering whether it might be better not to be alive at all. Another interesting fact about this song is that it was actually the favourite song of Guess Who?, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, who, of course, spent time in prison. Uh, he was a political prisoner uh, during the kind of uh, pre-revolutionary, czarist times. And so there's a really kind of bitter irony here that Lenin's favourite song should end up being used as a lament by a composer who perceived himself as a prisoner of the Soviet state that Lenin created. This fourth movement contains a bunch of other quotations, including bits of Wagner, an aria from Shostakovich's own opera, Lady Macbeth of Matsensk, And it leads into the fifth movement, where the Shostakovich motif returns and becomes the theme of a very long, anguish-filled funereal elegy. And so it's like in this this string quartet, uh, number eight, that Shostakovich's whole life was flashing before him. But why did he choose this moment to reflect on life, and why was he so consumed by thoughts of death? Well, Lev Lebedinsky, uh, a close friend of Shostakovich, later wrote that he believed that Shostakovich intended to commit suicide by taking sleeping pills on his return from Dresden, and that this plan failed only because Lebedinsky was able to steal the pills from him. What we can be certain of is that Shostakovich wasn't a happy man in this period. After the death of his first wife, his second marriage had been rather short-lived and had very recently ended in divorce. But perhaps the most significant event is that under pressure from Khrushchev's officials, Shostakovich had just applied to join the Communist Party, something he'd sworn he would never, ever do. And so he felt that he had utterly betrayed his own principles, and his letters from this period are full of anxiety and self-loathing. Was the Eighth Quartet then intended to be Shostakovich's last will and testament? Well, music historians are still kind of debating the matter today. What we can say for certain is that it's a work that is deeply personal to the composer. So a case in point is that when the Borodin Quartet, who premiered the work, played it to the composer at his home, Instead of Shostakovich giving them the criticism and direction they'd hoped for, the composer simply buried his head in his hands and wept. When they finished playing, the musicians quietly packed up their instruments and stole out of the room. Alas, trouble with the Soviet musical authorities wasn't unique to the state of Russia, If we shift our attention northwest to Estonia, which was then a Republic of the Soviet Union, a young composer by the name of Arvo Pert is fighting his own battle with the powers of musical censorship. From the early 1960s, he had experimented with serialism, which is a kind of atonal music based around giving an equal weight to all 12 notes of the scale. And this was really frowned on by the authorities. Uh, this kind of experimentation culminated in a 1968 work called Credo, which was not only serialist, which was already considered bad enough, but it was also an explicitly Christian work. It attracted the disapproval of Krennikov. This is the same Krennikov that had denounced Shostakovich and Prokofiev and tried to deprive, deprive them all of a living. Um, and Krennikov criticized Arvo Avopet for what he called his susceptibility To foreign influences. Parts music, Pert's music rather, was unofficially censored and it gradually disappeared uh, from concert halls. And so what followed was eight years of silence, in which Pert didn't really compose a note. However, in this period of silence, he studied. He studied medieval and Renaissance music in the hope of finding a new musical language that would be entirely his own. And find a new language he did that was not only highly original, but also extremely appealing to audiences. So appealing, in fact, that according to the concert website BarkTrack, uh, Pet was apparently the most performed living composer for eight straight years from 2011 to 2018. Who do you think took over in 2019? Well, have a think, and I'll let you know at the end of the podcast. Anyway, this new compositional style that Paird created was called Tintinabuli, which is based on the Latin word for bell. Uh, So when you strike a bell, what you hear is the bass note, but you also hear harmonic overtones above that bass note, which together form the notes of a triad. So a triad is simply a group of three notes that are often played together as a chord. So here, for example, is a C minor triad. Let's listen to it played as a chord and with the notes played separately. So how does this work in the Tintinabuli style? Well, what happens is that two different voices are paired. One of the voices plays the notes of the triad separately, and the other plays a melody using notes of the diatonic scale. There's that word again. So using the same, the same notes uh, from the scale that the triad is also in. Uh, And the melody moves usually in stepwise motion, so moving kind of up or down one note at a time. And so this melodic line also varies and moves depending on what note of the triad is being played. And Pert actually offered a kind of religious interpretation uh, for this relationship. He said that one line is my sins, and the other line is forgiveness. Tabula Rasa is one of a flurry of some 20 pieces written in 1976-77 that use this Tintinabuli style. The piece is scored for two, vo- two solo violins, strings, and prepared piano. Uh, a prepared piano is just a piano that's been messed about with in some way, uh, and in this case, some screws are placed between the piano strings to allow them to resonate perhaps a bit like bells or even like gongs. And so, let's have a listen to how this tintinnabuli technique is used in the work, after a fast, rhythmic first movement called ludus, Latin for game, that we heard a bit of at the beginning of the podcast, let's listen to the beginning of the second movement. And so what we'll hear is several tintinnabuli pairings, uh, where one instrument plays the notes of the triad, and one instrument the notes of the scale. And so the two solo violins form a pair, the two violin sections of the orchestra form a pair and the violas and cellos also form a pair. And so it doesn't really matter so much if you can hear all of this. Uh, it's just interesting to know that this is how the piece is put together. What you might be able to hear though, is that each of these pairings starts on exactly the same pitch. They all start on a D, but then they all start moving at different speeds, forming this sense of of something unfolding very slowly uh, but every voice unfolding at its own pace you can imagine it a bit like the petals of a flower slowly unfolding one by one let's have a listen So this movement is marked senza moto which means without movement and it really does seem like time slows down here uh, it's a rather austere sound and of course is reminiscent of the medieval choral music that Peart studied yet somehow there is also a lightness and a freshness and a transparency to this music as the tabula rasa or blank slate title suggests as Peart said of his own music i could compare my work to white light that contains all colours. Only a prism can divide the colours and make them appear. The prism could be the spirit of the listener. If Arvo Pett turned away from the avant-garde and towards religious minimalism, In Poland, the composer Wojciech Kilar was going through a similar journey, but to a different destination. Once a member of the Polish avant-garde in the 1960s, alongside perhaps the more well-known composers Penderecki and Gorecki, Kilar turned not to religious music, but to folk music. He became particularly inspired by music of the Tatra region of Poland, where there is a particularly kind of rambunctious form of Highland folk dancing. And I just happen to have an excerpt of this music. <laughs> So look, it's not quite my kind of thing, but the members of the Polish avant-garde apparently just couldn't get enough of this stuff. Like the folk music on which it is based, Kilar's own language in Orawa is tonal. It's very direct. This is quite typical of his music. Uh, And these are qualities which also recommended him as a composer of film music, which is where he really made his living. He composed several film scores for for kind of Polish and Eastern Bloc movies, but eventually he was asked by Francis Ford Coppola to score the 1992 adaptation of of Dracula. And so the story goes that, that Kilar was a bit nervous about scoring his first Hollywood movie and asked Coppola exactly what kind of music the director was expecting. Coppola replied, well, look, I did my bit. You're the composer. Do what you want. This kind of artistic freedom was really a a breath of fresh air for an Eastern Bloc composer like Kilar. And it makes you wonder if Francis Ford Coppola had been the secretary of the Soviet Composers Union, it might have made everyone's life a bit easier. Anyway, Kilar's Arawa, it's his most performed work. It's scored for strings, Uh, it's about eight minutes long, and it's based on a constantly repeated ostinato rhythm. Sections of the orchestra come in gradually, one by one, and the energy and momentum builds into this really impetuous, energetic Highland dance. So let's have a listen to a, a quick excerpt of this, of this music as it kind of reaches its climax. As you can hear, it's a hugely joyous work, which Keila recognized as perhaps his most felicitous achievement. As the composer wrote, "Orawa is the only piece in which I wouldn't change a single note, though I've looked at it many times. What is achieved in it is what I strive for: to be the best possible Keila." And folk music forms continue to inspire composers today, as evidenced by the final piece in the Tabula Raza program, "Shanti." by the British-born composer Thomas Addis. Addis is a prolific and award-winning composer who has been called the most important British composer since since Benjamin Britten. Now, I don't have any of the music from Shanty to play you, as this work is yet to have its world premiere, which will take place not in London or Berlin, but in Wollongong on February the 8th, and how proud we are. What we do know about this piece As it's based on 15 individual voices, which play sometimes together and sometimes divergently, and they create a widening seascape in the style of a sea shanty. The instruments of the orchestral players are supposed to be like the voices of sailors who dream of freedom from their petty masters and of a safe harbour beyond. And this is a dream that's perhaps shared by many artists, and particularly those artists whose work, and sometimes life, have been threatened by the forces of censorship and oppression. On that note, I hope that those of you attending the concert enjoy the music, and that those who aren't have learned something interesting in this podcast. The composer who took over as the most performed person uh, from Arvo Paired was the film composer John Williams, who, of course, wrote uh, all those fabulous scores for Star Wars and, and, uh, and Superman and so forth. The dates of the Australian Chamber Orchestra's Tabula Rasa series uh, are from February the 8th, uh, which is the first performance at the Wollongong Town Hall, and then from February 9th to 14th at the City Recital Hall in Sydney. The program will also be available to stream online as part of the ACO Studio Cast program available at aco.com.au. I'm Francis Merson, and thanks for listening.